Here's to the big one. Welcome to Worth Watching, host choice, where one of our hosts chooses a movie they love and their co-host then attempts to destroy their fondest memories. I'm your host and all I've ever wanted in life is to finally land the big one. Is that so wrong? (laughs) My co-host is Guy, a man who always undresses women before giving them CPR for their own safety. Hello, Guy. (laughs) Hello, Ron. So have you ever met anyone before whose life was saved by Deep Throat? Oh, I almost certainly have, although they didn't tell me about it. (laughs) Probably true. (laughs) (laughs) So for our first episodes of Host Choice, we decided to each pick the earliest movie we could remember seeing that we wanted to revisit. For me, it was 1975's Escape to Witch Mountain. And not surprisingly, since Guy and I are almost the same age, Guy chose 1976's version of King Kong. And so we've already watched Witch Mountain Now it's time for King Kong. So, Guy, what is your history with this movie? What made you want to go back and take another look? Well, when I was a kid, I went to see it in the theater, and I always was fascinated by the movie poster for it, where King Kong's standing with one foot on each of the World Trade Towers. (laughs) Which they don't follow through in the movie. That's that's disappointing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's not quite big enough to straddle him like that. Although he does jump across from one Mm. to the other, which is pretty good. Yeah, just uh, back when I was young, I wanted to see it, so I got to see it in the movie theater, and that kind of helped inspire a kind of a fondness for the World Trade Center, uh, you know, 1987. <laughs> yeah, don't, I don't get, get too fond of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. So in 1987, I actually got to go up to the observation deck, and that, that was wow. a fun little detail I saw in the movie. I correctly remembered that it was on the 107th floor, because the elevator in the movie shows that. Oh, wow. They were accurate about that. That was neat. But I uh, really watching this, there's not a lot of it that I really remembered. Mm -hmm. I remembered the part where King Kong is down in the hold of the great big ship. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, and I think that the the great big snake rang a bell Mm -hmm. too, I Mm -hmm. think. And the the unpleasant way that Kong does him in, uh, (laughs) that, that was pretty memorable. But a lot of this was pretty much new to me. It was like watching most of it for the first time. Yeah, for myself, I don't know if I saw it in the movie theater or not. I Maybe I did. I, they did have TV versions of it later where they actually did like an extra half hour material or something. So I can't be sure which way I saw it. But what I remember, a couple of things I remember. First of all, it was absolutely influential on me, right? Because, you know, we were both hmm. pretty young at that point, probably about the point where we were able to kind of start <laughs> noticing and remembering these things. And I remember having a real emotional response to Kong, a real emotional response to him dying at the end. That I, That's a real memory for me hmm. from this movie. And the, But the other kind of single shot I remember we'll get to, for some reason, it just jumped out at me when I was rewatching it. And I knew it was going to happen right before it did, was there's a point where Jessica Lang is on this boat and these natives come up in a little canoe and grab her and kidnap her. And that, and for right. some reason that little image stuck with me mm. all this time. <laughs> huh. So yeah, we both have little fragmented memories. We both saw it back then. It definitely had an impact on me. And later on, 
I became a huge fan overall of King Kong. The original movie from 1933, I consider to be a perfect movie. It's it's great special effects. Even today, it really stands up. You know, yeah, it's stop motion, and you can sort of see on his fur where, you know, fingers have been pressing down his fur and all that. <laughs> but it's great, and it's really well done. And it's extremely tight. And this is something I'll talk about. It's a 90-minute film. There's just not a wasted second mm. in it. And... You know, skipping ahead to 2005, Peter Jackson, after doing Lord of the Rings, the the next project they started on immediately was King Kong. He'd wanted to do it for years and years. And I was very excited. You know, there were two or three years there where I knew he was working on the movie. And I was really excited because he'd wanted to do it for a long time. And I felt like, okay, Peter Jackson is going to understand King Kong. This is going to be great. And then it came out... (sighs) And I hated it. <laughs> and someday <laughs> they will watch it. If we ever do watch it, and I'm sure I'm unfair to it because I had these expectations and it just didn't meet my expectations. But if we ever mm. get around to watching it, you might as well go and play a video game because for three hours, I'm just going to go on a monologue rant <laughs> about the movie. <laughs> and I mentioned three hours because that movie is over three hours long. And one of the things that mm. Peter, one of the many things that Peter Jackson did not understand about King Kong is the importance of it being a tight story. And we'll talk about it as we go through, you know, the 1976 one today. They're a little bit longer. They're about half hour longer, but they understood and they followed that template that every single beat in this movie is for the plot and moves it forward. And there's not a second of wasted time. And I really appreciate that about this film. Mm Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I am also hopeful at some point that we'll watch the original movie and talk about it. And, I, you know, I, I would love for us mm-hmm. to go over some of the old stop motion films and everything. Marion C. Cooper was the person who came up with the idea of King Kong. And he was a fascinating guy. He was an old fashioned man's man you know, back in the day. Mm-hmm. He was an explorer. So for him, actually, King Kong was basically an autobiography because this was in the days when... Most of the planet, you know, land-wise had been explored, except for deepest, darkest Africa. (laughs) Mm. And so you had all these stories and action stories and everything where, and real stories, right, where people would go into the depths of deepest, darkest Africa and find strange animals and bring, you know, kill them and bring them back and and they'd be put in a museum and and all this. Well, Marion Cooper actually did that and he actually found things similar to King Kong, right? You know, because when people first saw like the Komodo dragons and other things, these are like these huge creatures that no one had envisioned before mm-hmm. that actually existed. Um, so he really went through that. And also in, I think it was World War One, he was a pilot and he was shot down and he was a POW and he escaped that. Like this guy just, you know, everything that makes you a man, <laughs> this guy had done. And then he became a movie guy <laughs> and he made King Kong. And, you know, I think he did an, an amazing job. But uh, yeah. so we can go into more depth on that if we ever managed to get to the original film. Yeah. With that, before we get into the movie, anything else you would like to comment on? No, you know, when we were talking about why I chose this one, there were a lot of movies from my childhood that I remembered or that I've seen since then, like Westworld, I've seen mm. any number of times <laughs> since I saw it, or uh, Halloween, you know, various ones that King Kong, I was looking through the lists of like the biggest grossing movies mm-hmm. every year for 74, 75 and so forth. And, uh, King Kong was the one that really just kind of leaped out at me. So that's sort of why I chose it. 
you know, there were others like the uh, the Apple Dumpling Gang, I think. <laughs> <Okay. you know. laughs> Those Disney films like that, yeah. Well, and of course, mine, Escape from Witch Mountain, was also a, uh, no, a yeah. Disney film back then, yeah. <laughs> but that was before Disney owned everything and made every film, right? <laughs> yeah. So this one sounded like it would be a fun one to revisit, and uh, I, I, I had fun with it. Well, then, we will head into King Kong 1976. Mm-hmm. Wilson, we could get out of this stuff by backtracking around Timor Island. The only hitch is it costs us a couple of days. Keep on course, Captain. I'm fine. You know, I gotta admit, for a New York desk guy, you got a lot of guts. Guts, Hal. I sold this one to the board. If that island doesn't produce huge, I'll be wiping windshields. Well, the movie starts off in Surabaya, Indonesia. There's a ship at a dock. The ship is called the Petrox Explorer. That's P-E-T-R-O-X. Not to be confused with pet rocks, which were (laughs) floating around just, I think, maybe a year before the movie was made. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because at that age, you know, whatever it was, eight, nine, whatever, when the whole pet rock thing came along, I was too young to understand that it was kind of a joke, so I actually took it seriously, right? I mean, they actually had these little pamphlets and books and everything where you could order oh, a pet yeah. rock, and the pamphlet would tell you how to treat it and bring it up and everything, and I was like, oh, okay, it sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got one of those right on my shelf about uh, 10 feet away from me. <laughs> also I say, I it, assumed, though. you know, like many of these movies, I assumed that Surabaya was some fake name. I looked it up and it's like mm. the capital of Indonesia. So that shows you ah. how much I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you know a new factoid. <laughs> <laughs> this ship is getting prepared for a voyage of some sort. Uh, one, of the, one of the crewmen observes that there's only enough pipe being brought on board for 2,000 feet of drilling. It's a, it's an oil company ship, and they're not bringing nearly as much pipe as they would expect to if they're doing some exploratory work. But then a cab pulls up with an apparently drunk guy in it, <laughs> and uh, he bribes a guard to get into the through the fence leading to the dock. There's a lot of different things sort of going on back and forth here. While he's doing that, the captain is talking to a man who turns out to be named Fred Wilson. He's an executive with Petrox. Yeah, this is Charles um, Grodin, for, playing a very different oh, yeah. role for him, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The captain of the ship wants to wait 48 hours because there's a storm brewing. But Fred Wilson wants to wants to get moving. He, he says he wants to beat Shell and Exxon to this island. And the drunk guy, the apparently drunk guy, who uh, turns out to be the dude himself, <laughs> the l- little Lebowski, Jeff Bridges. And, and I swear, he looks exactly the same in this movie as he did as the dude like decades <laughs> later. I mean, he just, yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, just a, just a little younger. That's the only difference. He's got the long hair and the beard and the whole, whole nine yard. And then he, he did Tron back then, too, I think. So he really was in some pretty oh. fundamental movies back then. Yeah, very good. And, you know, I don't think I ever did see Tron. Oh, boy. Like We're going to have to put that on our list then. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So he sneaks onto the ship. He actually crawls up, a, crawls up a rope to get onto it. Then the opening credits start. They're just nothing too fancy. Just a few of the big names involved in the production. And 
we see some shots of the ship sailing placidly along into the sunrise or sunset or something. <laughs> as soon as the opening credits end, there's a big storm, which is exactly what the captain wanted to wait for. In the radio room, uh, the radio operator receives a mayday call, but it's garbled, it's uh, it's incomplete, and there's not much they can do about it at any rate, because the storm is really, really something. Fred Wilson seems a bit seasick. He's not feeling his best, but he doesn't want to try to avoid the storm, even though the captain says it's possible. Yeah, in the scene where you see this, he's eating uh, dinner or something with the captain, and I don't know how they shot it. I wasn't able to find much of the details about this. I assume this is a set, but if it was a set, it's one of those cases where they must have had the whole set up on gimbals or something because you know, oh, right. yeah. all the food and the dishes or everything are sliding across the table. And it's not like someone's pulling them on a string. Like this thing really is rocking oh, yeah. back it's... and forth in a serious way. <laughs> yeah. And I uh, I had never really given this any thought before, but um, it makes sense. The The table has a lip all around mm-hmm. the edge of it so that the dishes don't go flying off onto the floor. <laughs> it's a logical solution to that problem. So Fred is going to press on through the storm in spite of his seasickness, and the captain tells him, for a New York desk guy, you've got a lot of guts. <laughs> Fred explains that he sold uh, the Petrox board on the idea of exploring this island, so uh, his career is pretty much riding on it. He's got to come back with something good, or uh, he'll be out on the street, probably. Fred gathers up the crew for a slideshow, and he says, we may be sailing into the history books, (laughs) and he is right about that. He shows them two pictures that were taken 35 years apart, one just a couple weeks ago and one back in the 1940s. They show the exact same fog bank. It's been there for 35 years. Right. This is a place that the maps show to be just sea, right? There's nothing supposed to be there. Right. And uh, he hands over the presentation to the scientist, Roy, who is uh, René Aubergenois. I don't know how you pronounce his name. But yep, he, that uh, sounds good. And how he, familiar, cause, uh, what do you know him from? He's He's been in a whole lot of stuff. He was on an old sitcom. I'm tempted to say it was Benson, but I'm, oh, I'm yeah, not he was. sure. Yeah, he um, was, I think he was, was he the butler or something in that? Something you know, where like I really that. got to know him was Star Trek Right, he was a security guy or something. Yeah, he was the shapeshifter. Deep Space Nine, he was the shapeshifter. And and so I had seen him in Benson back in the day, but it was Deep Space Nine where I I got to know him. Yeah, so he's one of those guys who's had a really interesting career. Yeah, Yeah, and I I wasn't sure at first that it was him, but I thought, boy, that kind of reminds me of him. And then I saw (laughs) at, at the end he's in the credits, so I was right. Anyway, Roy, the scientist, He is showing some satellite photos, they're infrared photos that were obtained through illicit channels through the government (laughs) because that's that's the kind of pull that Fred Wilson has. And these reveal that there is an island in the fog bank. Meanwhile, while all this talking is going on, the dude sneaks (laughs) in into the back of the room and he's taking notes back there. Roy says the fog bank may be caused by a vast underground reservoir of oil. At this point, the dude speaks up and says the fog could be due to animal respiration, (laughs) which uh, would be a new one on me, but I, you know, he's a scientist. 
Yeah, and it, actually, as we'll see, we, we don't really get an answer to that, because it turns out the island both has animal respiration and oil, so <laughs> maybe it was a mm-hmm. combination of the two. That yeah, so it's part. a combination of both, I guess. The dude, I'm just probably going to call him the dude all along, <laughs> even though we, we will find out his real name soon enough. He tells of an explorer who found the island in 1605, and he found some kind of great beast, but the the details are sketchy because a lot of his writings were suppressed by the Vatican. <laughs> and then in 1749, a lifeboat was found, and there was a painting in blood in the boat of a, of a slouchy creature of some sort. <laughs> And uh, this fella, it turns out his name's Jack Prescott, and he's a paleontologist, and he's interested in these myths or legends of uh, of a great beast on this on this island. What, so, what I thought was funny with this painting in blood in the 1749 boat is he also quotes this long poetic thing that they apparently also wrote in blood and i don't remember exactly what it had something to do with you know mm. if you marry the beast you know this and that'll happen i'm like how much blood did this guy have <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's something like god save me from being married to the beast or something like <laughs> that yeah anyway jack prescott says he's a paleontologist but uh, fred suspects him of working for another oil company which is a reasonable uh, mm-hmm. suspicion so a couple of the guys lead Prescott to a room where he can be locked up and checked out uh, or locked up while he's checked out. But on the way there, Jack spots something in the water. It's a raft and there's a live woman in it. <laughs> and a cute live woman at that. Well, yeah. Okay, so we're in the middle of the ocean and this raft shows up out of nowhere. And not only is a woman in it, but she has a very slinky cocktail dress and is brawless, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah, and they, yeah. they check the tag on the dress, actually, and it's uh, from a place in Beverly Hills, so yeah. it's a very swanky dress here. And uh, I want to say, so this is Jessica Lang, and this is her very first movie, and I read up on this. I don't know that much about her. I'm sure I've seen her in things, but I was not that familiar with her. And it, this being her first movie, she actually both was well-received, but also criticized for her acting in the movie. And mm-hmm. she essentially disappeared for two years after this movie. And what she was doing was she was getting, is she was a model. She was a famous model. And that's how she got cast in this. And, you know, cl- mm-hmm. as we'll see, they clearly wanted to make use of someone with a model's um, attributes in this movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think she was stung a little by the criticism of her acting. So she spent two years doing nothing but an intensive acting course to improve her acting. And I really appreciate that because, you know, there are plenty of models who become actresses or actors and, you know, they don't usually work on it real hard because they don't need to. And Mm. apparently, you know, her efforts paid off because she actually has won almost every possible acting award there is. And she's very well respected. So, you know, I Mm. think the fact that she was willing to, after her first big movie, which was pretty successful to say, you know what, I'm going to go away and learn how to actually do this. That's pretty cool. Oh yeah, that's neat. And she's she's fun in this. There are there are some moments where the acting isn't as great as others, but overall she comes across as this kind of sweet, 
maybe a tiny bit ditzy girl, you know, but right. just uh, but just good natured and uh, sort of optimistic. And, I agree. She has a yeah. personality here. It's not like a uh, was it Vanna White, right? Who did the game show? Um, yeah, Wheel of Fortune. Wheel yeah. of Fortune. You know, she did some TV movies and stuff, and and you know, she's a nice person, but she was terrible. And it's not oh, like yeah. that at all here. Jessica Lange is not terrible. She's just not, you know. Maybe, a, you know, she's not a seasoned actress at this point, right. that's all. Yeah. So one of the crewmen wants to uh, administer first aid to it, <laughs> to her. Uh, he He's uh, he's very proud of the fact that he's had some first aid training. We but. saw some <laughs> shots of him a little bit earlier, and I actually had to look it up because I could almost swear that he was the guy who played Jaws. Richard Keel, I was thinking that. And then I looked it up and it wasn't him, but God, does he look like that guy. He's tall and he has that same kind of look, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, the very first scene where he's talking about how they only have 2,000 mm-hmm. feet of pipe. That occurred to me and I didn't think to look in the credits to see if it was him or not, but... But yeah, there's a there's definitely a resemblance yeah. there. <laughs> but this is where my comment earlier, where his his first thing on applying CPR to her is to start taking off her dress because <laughs> he yeah. wants to make sure there's no other yeah, wounds that he, he needs to, to know about. The... <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean but, that uh, you know all medical people know that, that you want to make sure that there's there's no external wounds on the person before you give them CPR. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, you don't want all that fabric to be constricting the blood flow and, you know, all that stuff. (laughs) So it was apparently the yacht that she was on that was sending the Mayday signal that we heard earlier that this ship was in no position to do anything about. And we'll find out uh, that 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 yacht actually ended up exploding. So it's probably just as well that they didn't uh, go to it. Yeah, we never get in the details about how she was on a yacht that exploded but managed to get into an inflatable boat and inflate it. So we just don't, let's just not go there. (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, uh, one one of the guys says something like, uh, you know, uh, you were in the water in an inflatable raft by some miracle came off the <laughs> yacht and uh you know it inflated it was a self-inflating raft you know so so he sort of uh i think the term is hanging a lampshade yeah <laughs> but yeah it's a, a very unlikely uh survival and she she got lucky there meanwhile prescott's records the dude's records have come to the ship uh, it seems like they have a fax machine that mm-hmm. works over the radio and they check out the fingerprints match. Uh, he is who he says he is. He has a naval background, and uh, he also had a year of medical school, which uh, uh, is of interest to Fred because he's about the closest thing they have to a doctor, I guess. So he wakes up Jack and brings him to check on this castaway. And he says uh, to Jack that he'll also be the official photographer, so he's going to wear many hats. And that's on top of being a paleontologist. <laughs> Jack gives the girl smelling salts. Uh, she comes to and she asks about Harry and everyone. Harry and everyone are the people that she was on the yacht with. Fred tell her the yacht sank, and that's too bad because Harry was going to put her in a movie when they got to Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, what's not too bad is that everybody on the boat died. What's too bad is that her career <laughs> has now been halted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just a bad deal all around. <laughs> So she uh, she reveals that her name is Dwan, not Dawn, but Dwan, <laughs> with the A and the W switched. Yeah, uh, she says she, she did, did that. that to be memorable, right? <laughs> right. It is memorable. Well, there's that. She tells of a meaningful miracle. She 
had uh, Harry and everyone, presumably, had been down uh, below decks watching a movie, and she refused to watch it. So she was up up on deck when the uh, when the storm hit, and that's how that's how she survived. And so she says that her life was saved by Deep Throat, which was the movie <laughs> they were watching below decks. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's the kind of movie that Harry hoped to make in Hong Kong also. But, uh, <laughs> that's a good point. She might, Her career might have actually been uh, saved a bit by the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So then there's a montage of Dwan hanging out with Jack, enjoying the ship, you know, just yeah. sort of a few minutes. And I wanted to comment on this because this is, uh, I mean, I will try to avoid ranting about Peter Jackson's King Kong, but this is an example of the difference, which is she shows up, you know, they revive her and then they have, I don't know, 30 second minute, maybe 90 seconds max montage where they develop her relationship with everybody on the ship and with Jack, you know, Bridges. And everything where in Peter Jackson's King Kong, they're like, now let's spend an hour on this. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, that's the difference between these films. But you know, oh, we'll go yeah. back to talking about this film that we're actually watching. <laughs> <laughs> so once we see the montage of her getting used to the ship, then we see the ship is parked right at the fog bank. And there's a neat little view of the ship parked there with the fog bank just mm-hmm. You know, maybe a football field's length away, just sort of looming there. And, you know, I don't know how they shot that. I mean, you know, this is pre-CGI. They must have just had some fog machine or something spitting out a bunch of fog because, you know, how would you do that? Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I guess, uh, I don't know, if you had good enough weather information, you might be able to find uh, a fog bank. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll have to find out one of these days. So Jack, being the new official photographer, he takes lots of pictures. I mean, he doesn't take one picture where six would suffice. So I don't know why he brought or how he brought so much film, but he takes a lot of pictures. Well, he did mention earlier when he was made the photographer that he had taken pictures of monkeys. So I guess for some reason he's, you know, prepared for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he would, uh, I mean, given that he expects to find a big slouchy beast of some sort, uh, he'd probably want to be well-prepared with film. On the bridge of the ship, they're looking at the radar scan, and it has a side view uh, of the island that shows them the mountains and, you know, the profile of it. And in this green radar, they see a little red blip appear momentarily, which we'll find out later is the radar actually... Registering King Kong. No, it's just some birds or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what they speculate. It's just a glitch, you know, a flock of birds or something. But one thing, and I'm not sure, I don't know enough about radar to say for certain, but the radar view of the island is green, and the blip shows up in red, and I don't think that's how the radar would actually work. I think it, it would but it wouldn't be, be nearly as cool <laughs> if it didn't yeah. have a red blip. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Rule of cool, I guess that's called. So then Dwan, wearing shorts and a cutoff top, it's really, uh, I wouldn't say, I mean, you could wear something much more provocative, but on the provocative scale, it's probably a seven. It would be hard to wear something a lot more provocative. Let Let me just put it this way. If she was wearing that top, she wouldn't want to meet me in a dark alley. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Yeah, that's, uh. It's it's a cute outfit at any rate. 
and she wants to go ashore with the men. They don't and they're want her actually, to go. They're actually catcalling her based on her talk. Yeah, when she first when she first comes down the 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 steps, uh, one of the guys uh, gives her a little wolf whistle. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, she's definitely uh, wearing it well. But the men don't want her to go because they want to scout out everything first, make sure it's safe, and so on. But she tells Wilson that he owes it to her because she has a Petrox credit card, which is a successful gambit, and he relents. He lets her go along. And as they're getting into the boat, she tells Jack her horoscope said she'd cross over water and meet the biggest person in my life. <laughs> and she so. thinks that's Jack Wilson, or that's Fred Wilson. Right? But yeah. it turns out probably not what uh, the horoscope was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the boat goes slowly and gingerly through the fog, but they finally get to the shore, and it's a, it's a pretty little beach that they end up on. Duan spots a waterfall ahead along the path that they're going to be traveling, and she runs to it. Jack scolds her a little bit for running on ahead. He says to stick with him. He's apparently developing uh, some sort of concern <laughs> for her. So the whole group, they regroup apparently at the waterfall, and they follow the stream further uphill. And suddenly, Fred says, Holy mother, <laughs> because there's a massive palisade before them, this tall, tall wooden fence, and it's it stretches on for a long ways. And Fred says, this is an ancient rune, because obviously nobody lives here anymore. <laughs> yeah. But Jack thinks it was repaired recently because there's fresh earth in it. And after every monsoon, monsoon season, you'd have to repair, mm. uh, replace the earth that got yeah, washed Jack, away. Jack plays the role of the annoying scientist who's always inserting facts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fred does try to straighten out Jack, as he puts it. But uh, as he says the island is uninhabited, the native drums start, which uh, <laughs> sort of disproves that theory. Turns out uh, they, they climb up onto some rocks that give them a view of a clearing down below. And there are hundreds of natives gathered in this clearing. And they're gathered before a massive gate in the palisade. And currently the gate is bolted with a giant log. One of the native women is borne in on a litter. And uh, she's apparently the guest of honor at some kind of ceremony they're doing yeah and some of the dancers they're covered in this thing that kind of makes them look like ghosts which i thought was pretty effective yeah they're like these almost like pillowcase like outfits but they've got uh, more scary faces on them <laughs> but yeah they're kind of neat and roy uh, the scientist he he spots some steaming pools down there that could be oil it's hard to tell through the binoculars but uh, it looks promising and now we hear that the natives are chanting Kong, Kong. <laughs> and this is the cue for a man in an ape mask to dance for the woman on the letter. He's doing, uh, I guess, I guess you would say it's a fairly, uh, fairly sultry kind of dance. You know, lots of <laughs> pelvic thrusts and whatnot. Right. And I think this is where Dwan asked Jack if this is a wedding. And he, you know, again, being the science guy, he understands everything instantly. So he says, well, it is. But the guy in the ape mask is a stand-in for the actual groom. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jack nailed that one. <laughs> <laughs> so the man in the ape mask is dancing there, but he spots the Petrox group up on the rocks above, and he leads a bunch of the natives up the hill to confront these people. A lot of yelling ensues. 
neither side can understand the other. Neither one speaks the other's language. After a couple minutes of going around in circles, the chief leads six of his women up, and apparently he wants to trade these six women for Dwan. <laughs> the Petrox people have grown fond of her, I guess, because they don't want to make that trade. The chief looks like he's just about ordering his men to attack. They lower their spears. In the Petrox team, they start firing their boomsticks in the air. <laughs> Interesting thing here, leading up to it, Jack had kept prepping them. He said, if you have to shoot, shoot in the air. So two things about that. One, he is trying to protect the natives. He doesn't, and he doesn't want to start a fight that, you know, they might not hmm. win. But also he realizes they may well need to use their guns. And we'll see later. He's not shy about using guns. He just wants to use them responsibly. Right. And this tactic of shooting in the air works. The The natives all scatter. Back on the ship, Dwan is on the bridge. It's nighttime. Uh, there's nobody around. She's <laughs> on the bridge, and she has a cigarette there. And she she leaves the bridge just in time to miss another ominous blip on the radar. <laughs> we get a quick shot of the natives canoeing through the fog. They're headed out to the ship. Meanwhile, in the ship, Fred is making plans to scare off the natives. But Jack is excited about Kong. He's convinced that they've really, they're really onto something, that this mythical monster really exists. And this is one of these things we see, and, you know, depending on when this is released, uh, either months in the future or months in the past, we had a conversation about Quatermass that was similar to this, where the science guy both understands everything that's going on and intuits everything. So here they just heard some people chanting a word that kind of sounded like Kong, but he already knows that Kong is this giant creature that, you know, has all this oxygen that he, or carbon dioxide that he's uh, exporting into the air, et cetera, where it's like, <laughs> well, you just heard a couple, you know, you just heard this phrase. You don't even know what it is from these people. But he knows exactly what it is, you know, because the science guy <laughs> always knows exactly what's going on, even if it's invaders from Mars or whatever. So. <laughs> yeah, although there there is a scene in a little bit where he ad admits that he is ignorant of something. <laughs> we'll get to that. So Fred Wilson, uh, he's not so excited about Kong. He says it's some nutty religion. <laughs> the priest gets dressed up like an ape and gets laid, which, uh, you know, under... Normal circumstances, that would probably be the best guess, I would think. Yep. But this island is not normal. <laughs> Fred says if they run into an ape more than four feet tall, they'll shoot it, which, uh, which horrifies Jack, and he points out that that could be bad public relations for Petrox. <laughs> yeah, I think he says, like, you know, they'll have young people burning Petrox gas stations all across the country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, so maybe, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's still nighttime. Now Jack is furtively loading up one of the boats for a trip to the shore. He wants to do some individual exploring there. Then he talks with Dwan. She's hanging out on a little floating dock next to the ship. It's just sort of attached to the ship, and that's how you get down to the boats for the away team and not that it means anything it's just the only place on the boat where somebody could come and grab you <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh it's it just happens to be the place that's easiest to abduct one of the passengers <laughs> so jack is making one more supply trip he's got to go back to the galley and get a few more things for the boat 
And then he's going to meet Duan in her cabin. And uh, <laughs> Well, I like how he says this, right? He says, Say, uh, you'll disappoint me if you're here when I get back. What do you mean you'll be disappointed? Well, I was hoping you'd be waiting for me in your cabin. <laughs> so I can meet you there, so... This is a very clear hookup here, you know. Yeah, yeah, and they uh, they both seem uh, they both seem to have the simpatico. They they both seem <laughs> on the same page here. But while he's making his supply trip, of course, she is abducted by a right. canoe full of natives. She gets a chance to make one brief little squawk, and they cover up her mouth. Yeah, these are damn lucky natives, right? They knew where the ship was. They rode out to the ship, and the person they wanted happened to be on the one you know, five inch spot of the ship where they could grab her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it must be, uh, it must be their big old monkey God intervening on their behalf, <laughs> I guess. Fortunately, however, the natives leave behind a bone necklace. So Jack knows what happened. Uh, Cause otherwise they might think she fell in the ocean or who knows what. Meanwhile, Fred is sending an optimistic message back to New York, even though they haven't, tested the oil from those pools yet he's just gonna gamble that it's a good find and he's yeah just... and roy is here and saying you shouldn't do this we should get more information <laughs> first but he's like no no you've got to be optimistic we've got to just you know barge forward <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's really I, I don't see much of an upside to not waiting 24 hours <laughs> to send that message but oh well I guess you got to let Fred be Fred. Mm -hmm. Dewan wakes up. She's dressed in a tiara and necklaces, both made of seashells, tiny little, I think they might be cowrie shells. I'm not certain, but they're little ones that look kind of like uh, peanuts. I don't know, <laughs> except they're white. Anyway, they're uh, nice tiara and necklaces, and she seems drugged. Yeah, and we see, like, some of the women give her some liquid to drink, so... Seems very plausible, right? <laughs> yeah. And at this point, we get uh, quite a bit of rituals and dancing and chanting. It's, you know, for my taste, it goes on a little bit long, <laughs> but no, oh, well, it's well done anyway. I mean, it's it looks authentically non-Western or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> then they, uh, they open the gate then, and they tire between two poles on a platform. The natives go back out the big gate. They shut it and latch it, and then they gather on top of the palisade to watch. Yeah, the they're all like holding torches, right? So you can see them up there. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, the ship is sending a whole bunch of boats ashore <laughs> on the rescue mission. I was thinking about this, like. If it was just some random guy who was a dishwasher who'd gotten kidnapped, would they have sent like five boats to the shore to try and save him? I'm kind of doubting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does seem unlikely. <laughs> well, on one side of the fence, something big is crashing through the trees and knocking down the trees. Uh, we actually get a first-person view of some of the trees being knocked down. And this thing, the big thing, is a big ape. Surprise. And this is the uh, Kong that we've heard. Yeah, yeah. in case uh, somebody out there isn't familiar with the King Kong story, <laughs> he's an ape. Duan doesn't seem to notice him, probably because she's all drugged up, until he's standing right in front of her, and many times her size, probably, I don't know, 30 foot tall, maybe, <laughs> I don't know, something well, like that. Big, one of the big ape. traditions of the King Kong story, right, which I actually respect, is that at any point in time, 
Kong is as big as he needs to be, right? So sometimes <laughs> yeah. he's a pretty big ape, and other times he's the size of a skyscraper, right? It just depends <laughs> on what size he needs to be at the moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she doesn't notice him until he's standing right in front of her, and he starts howling and beating his chest and doing the stuff that apes do. <laughs> he picks her up, and she screams a lot, and he takes her off into the forest. The natives, having done their work, go back to their dancing and their rituals and all that. And the Petrox folks show up, and they put on a great big fireworks show to scare the natives away. <laughs> uh, it works pretty well. The Petrox folks get the big gate open again, and they see the empty platform where uh, Duan was just recently tied up. <laughs> Fred falls in a hole. And the hole turns out to be a footprint. <laughs> and I, I, I think this is kind of a movie trope. I know I've seen it in other things, too. Uh, possibly Jurassic Park. I'm not certain. Sure, sure. Not, I've, I've seen it in other things. And probably anyway. they were referencing, you know, King Kong, yeah. Oh, yeah, could be. Then we find out uh, there's a little bit of a time lapse. We find out that Jack has gone with a, a team of a bunch of other guys, and they've gone two miles inland so far. Meanwhile, Fred and the captain, they're back on the beach. They've got a nice little tent set up there. Um, <laughs> By the way, did you notice in the background they had a full alcohol set up, you know, J&B, uh, vodka, etc. I mean, so you don't want to go out to a mysterious island and not have your complete, you know, alcohol set ready. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, if you if you need to suddenly offer one of the natives hospitality or yeah. something, you, know, you don't want to be rude. So, yeah, it's a nice little camp they got there. And Jack and his team, they pitch camp until dawn. The captain suggests to Fred that the ape would make a hell of a commercial. And Fred seems to ponder this. He seems to be taking that idea seriously. Yeah, I think the captain was making a joke. But, mm -hmm. you know, Fred's like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that will, uh, that will pay off more later. In the camp, Carnahan, one of the other men in the in the group. I assumed he was the captain for a while, then I realized, no, the older guy's the captain. So he's kind of like the first mate, right? He's clearly in charge yeah. of this group that's doing the, the trip. Yeah, he's got a sailor's outfit on, uh, so he probably first mate, I would guess, yeah. But Carnahan, he's speculating about the marriage <laughs> of Dawn and Kong, and Jack gets, gets really teed off at him uh because uh you know for one thing he he apparently likes dawn or Duan, <laughs> and also he doesn't know what kong has planned for her so he's as he says to carnahan uh, he says something to the effect that i'm just as ignorant of all this as you are mm -hmm. so this is the scene where the scientist admits that he doesn't know everything <laughs> oh, that's good uh at dawn dewan wakes up <laughs> from a from a peaceful slumber to find a giant ape squatting next to her. As you do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, she doesn't start screaming right away, to her credit. She uh, she crawls around a bit, and he uses his hand as a fence to keep her in the general vicinity so she yeah. doesn't get to wander. And special effects-wise, I think this is one of the more effective things they had, which was, I mean, they switch between a guy in a suit mostly, and this big hand and arm that they had. And I think it, it works pretty well because this hand is real and it's very large and it, it makes him kind of believable. And so there are even a lot of shots where like he's holding her and you're seeing a shot of a guy 
in a suit and you're seeing this giant hand holding her kind of combined together and it works pretty well. It really gives you this idea of this giant ape who's holding her. Yeah, it's not bad. It works well enough. <laughs> so after a few moments of fencing her in, he uh, he withdraws his hand. He He thinks a moment. Then he picks her up and she really gets uh, a variety of stuff to say in the next couple minutes here. She starts babbling about how she can't stand heights. She starts crying and asks him to put her down. <laughs> she calls him a goddamn chauvinist pig ape <laughs> and challenges him <laughs> to go ahead and eat her. She hasn't been privy to the conversations that Fred and Jack had, where it turns out that apes normally eat berries and other innocuous stuff like that. But then again, this could be a different species of mm. ape. Who knows? <laughs> and then she starts punching King Kong in the nose. But when he starts growling, she's quick to apologize. <laughs> she says, uh, sometimes I get too physical. It's a sign of insecurity, you know, like when you knock down trees. <laughs> <laughs> I love that man. <laughs> also, I'll just mention again, special effects wise, you know, that whole big hand and arm I was talking about. And, and it may have been this scene. I don't know if it was this or a different one, but famously, she almost got crushed because the you know, the hands started closing in on her and they couldn't stop it. <laughs> oh boy. And she was hurt enough that she refused to come to the set for like two days. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. oh yep. wow. I'm glad she didn't get squished. Yep. Right. Well, then she starts sweet talking him and she's asking him about his astrological sign. Yeah. She brings up <laughs> astrological signs a lot. through the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, that was what they did in the seventies. You know, it was a big thing. Kong sets her down, and she runs for it, but she only gets about maybe 50 feet before she stumbles into a mud puddle. And this is kind of disappointing for him, right? Because she just spent a whole bunch of time being really nice to him and saying really nice things, and then in response, he puts her down. And the first thing she does is run away, and it's kind of like, oh, geez, I thought we had this thing going here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, story of my life. <laughs> So he picks her up, and she cries for help. Okay, and now we're into the second half of the movie. <laughs> and one thing I'll mention is that, unlike a certain remake that will not be named again, there's really almost not been a second in here that wasn't useful. I mean, you had one little point you said was a little bit long, but otherwise mm. this thing just moves along. Yeah. And now we see the crew that is on, has been on the shores making their way through a massive, very green valley in Kauai. I mean, uh, Skull Island. <laughs> and <laughs> when watching a film like this, especially before everything was CGI, we don't usually think what the process was like for the actors and crew. So in order to be in the middle of this giant valley in a mountainous area, they had to drive out there and then probably walk for an hour or something to get to the center of this thing. And there's no paths, there's no roads. <laughs> and so it must have been a huge hassle, but we don't really think about that mm -hmm. when we're watching something like this. So they're in the middle of this huge valley and Carnahan takes out a cardboard tube, and he fires off a flare to show their location. Now, it, it occurred to me, it's been a long time since I saw the black and white King Kong, but mm -hmm. 
Didn't the island in that, didn't it actually have like some geographical feature that looked like a skull, like a mountainside or cliff or something that looked... I don't recall off the top of my head, although I will say on Kauai, and I've been there and I've actually spent a lot of time in Kauai, there actually is a portion of the shore of the island that has rocks that look like King Kong's head. And I think they used it in one of these films. It might have been in the Peter Jackson one where I actually see a shot of this. It's really bizarre. I've actually been out on a, you know, on a boat going by and it's like, there's King Kong's head as a rock. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll have to send you a picture. I've taken a picture of it. Oh, neat. Uh, So Fred Wilson is at the camp on the shore, on the radio, talking to Carnahan. And (laughs) his situation here is really funny and typical for him. He has his feet up on another chair, and he's being massaged by some guy on his shoulders while he talks. (laughs) So so it doesn't matter that he's out in the middle of nowhere on the shore of this island. He's got all of the um, amenities, (laughs) the alcohol, the massage. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to be the king. (laughs) Yep. And he tells Carnahan that radar shows that Kong is moving around randomly, almost like in a circle. And this is one of those cases where Jeff Bridges, Jack, has one of those sciencey, you know, intuition things. He immediately understands if Kong is moving around in a circle, he must have lost one and he's looking for her. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. but this is again, this is that kind of like telepathic knowledge. Like, you know, how would you actually understand this? Yeah, the you know, a big red blip on radar means this. <laughs> so Bridges wants the team to move on immediately, but of course Fred Wilson wants them to stay because they're planting explosives to do seismic checking to find out where oil is. And they have this big long conversation back and forth where Bridges says to Fred Wilson, Listen, there is a girl out there who might be running for her life from some gigantic turned on ape. Jack, I know how you feel. I feel the same. There's a national energy crisis which demands that we all rise above our private selfish interests. (laughs) And this does tie in, you know, their whole thing of doing Petrox and everything. They intentionally did because in the 70s we did have this big energy crisis. And if you recall, there were all these lines Mm -hmm. at gas stations, etc. So they were very much tying into that. Oh, yeah. And the Fred character is, he's interesting because he's not like, like, see... In Aliens, you got Carter J. Burke, you know, who's just pretty much a total prick. You know, he, he may put on a deceptive facade, but behind it all, he's just no damn good. Where, <laughs> you know, you, you don't, Fred Wilson, he's a mix, you know, he's got some things that aren't so commendable, but then again, you know, sometimes he's all right. Oh, it's, it's well, he has a personality. I'm not so sure about the all right part. I think you might be giving him a little too much credit. <laughs> well, like, you know, he, he, he ends up offering these nice, uh, sweet contracts to these two people who just weren't even invited on the trip to start with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Know. Well, we'll get there. But it yeah, might be he, also he can also be very, um, callous and rapacious. And <laughs> yeah. So we now switch to an area with massive waterfalls and a little bit of unfortunate green screening, but that's okay. And Kong is walking with a very muddy dwan in his hand toward a smaller waterfall that won't, like, crush her. (laughs) He (laughs) uses that waterfall as a shower for her to wipe off the mud. Then he drops her into a pool so she can sort of swim around and get clean. And we have some very romantic music. This is their honeymoon, right? They just got married. Yeah. And Kong picks her up and he blows on her to dry her off. And I don't know if you noticed this, but 
She has a physical reaction to his blowing on her that's a bit more than I have ever gotten from using a hair dryer, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she uh, she does seem to really be uh, enjoying it. All I could think of was, man, what does a giant ape's breath smell like? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to say, let's just say that Kong just now got further than Jeff Bridges ever did. <laughs> and, uh, you could say that this relationship is now consummated. <laughs> So back on the beach, Fred Wilson is meeting Roy, and Roy has tested the samples and tells Fred that he's verified that it's oil, and, and Fred is really excited, jumping around. They all said I was crazy. I'm going to prove them all right. And Roy is just cackling like this you know, evil, maniacal guy, and he says, it's oil, all right, but it just needs a bit more cooking to be useful. Nothing much, say 10,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, uh, Fred Wilson is deflated, and he's already sent off his message to New York about how they found oil and everything's going great. And Roy says, I did tell you, you shouldn't have radioed New York that you were bringing in the big one. And when he says that, bringing in the big one, it gives Fred Wilson an idea. See, you know, okay, maybe they can't use the oil, but he can still bring in the big one. <laughs> <laughs> and he immediately radios the boat to call in an airdrop. So he instantly has this whole plan. We don't know what it is yet, but... He wants uh, something to be airdropped to them. Mm -hmm. And we're back to the crew walking along. And now we're at, you know, one of the fundamental King Kong scenes. And every remake has recreated this from the original. And it's really the first conflict between Kong and everyone else, right? They saw him a little bit earlier, but they didn't actually interact with him. And this is the log scene. So the deal here is they come up to this big chasm, you know, that is very, very deep. And there's a huge tree slash log that has fallen across the chasm. And Jack goes across it first to show that it's safe. And then everyone else gets on the log. And the classic part of this is once everyone else is on the log, Kong shows up. And in this case, Jack is very smart. He immediately jumps over the side of the chasm onto a uh, vine so he can hang there as he realizes he doesn't want to be around Kong. Kong comes over, and this yeah. is the classic thing. He picks up the log and starts moving it back and forth, rotating it to knock everybody off of it. And yeah. he knocks all but one of the crew off of it, and they fall into this thing. And this is such a huge chasm that they clearly die. So we're surprised. I mean, Carnahan is dead. Everybody except one guy, the official black guy in the movie, is yeah. dead. I think his name was Bone. If I or Bo, right. I think, or something. Yeah, we never really yeah. knew it. And again, it is it is the classic scene. And in fact, in the original movie, the people who fall, they fall into what's called the spider pit. And these spiders come, these giant spiders, and spear them and kill them. And when they did a preview of the original movie, the audience was so disturbed by this scene that not only did they scream during the scene, but for the entire rest of the movie, they kept talking because they were talking to each other about mm. the spider scene. So Marion Cooper, you know, who created Kong in the movie, the next day went back and cut out the spider scene from the film. Because even though it was very effective, it was too effective, right? It, it, mm. it messed up people's paying attention to the film. And unfortunately, he didn't just cut it out, he threw it away. And it's now considered the most famous lost footage ever. Huh. So, back to our movie. <laughs> Bridges has survived hanging off the side. The official black guy is there, and he sort of also jumps on the other side of the chasm. He jumps to a vine and hangs on. 
And then, again, in a recreation from the original, Kong tries to get at Bridges or Jack, but Jack hides in a little cubbyhole, and Kong is trying to get him, but his fingers aren't quite long enough, and he can't get him out of there. He does get pissed off by this, and he picks up the log and throws it, because now he knows that he's trapping Jack. He's not going to be able to get back across the chasm. The black guy's on the other side, and he heads back to tell everyone else what's happened. And, you know, I want to say I'm referring to him as the black guy, not because he's a black actor, but because he's the one non-native of this island black actor in this film. This is how this film is treating him. Mm, yeah. And I don't agree with that. I don't like that. I, you mm-hmm. know, I don't like to apply politically correct things to older films, but there are certain racial things as we did with the prisoner that I'll point out where it's like the only reason you have this guy is for this reason. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Okay. So back at the ship, we see a plane doing the drop that Wilson had ordered. These are big, mysterious yellow barrels. So they're dropping them down with parachutes. We don't know what are in the barrels. On the shore, Wilson is ordering people around, and they now have heavy equipment like an earth mover. And so, so boy, they had a lot of stuff on this boat. You know? <laughs> and Roy says to him, you really think that's going to ring the bell? Promise oil. Bring back a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> and Fred Wilson tries to radio Carnahan, who's now, as we know, dead. <laughs> he yeah. fell into that chasm. So he gets nothing. But he decides, well, that just means the radio's broken. There's not really a problem. And we see the heavy equipment being used to dig a big trench, and a bunch of people are hauling tree branches near the trench. We still don't know exactly what's going on. Then the captain wants Wilson to send out a search party for the crew since they haven't heard back from them. And Wilson refuses, says he can't spare a single person. So, you know, he's always focused on whatever his current thing is, and he really, (laughs) you know, doesn't care too much about human life. Yeah. But then Wilson is on top of this big, you know, wooden wall, and he sees the black guy straggling toward the wall, <laughs> clearly kind of wounded and, and exhausted, and he yells out to him, asking where the others are, and the black guy draws a finger across his throat. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Jack has been following Kong's easy-to-spot footprints. <laughs> easy to spot because you're falling into them every few feet. <laughs> And eventually it's night, so he's probably spent hours following the trail. And there's this kind of huge crater that Kong is in, and he's holding Duan. And there are these two huge rocks in the center, and the moon is above. And this image of these two large rocks, these pillars with the moon above them, this image is going to become very significant later in the film. Yeah. So Kong is holding Duan, and he's looking at her rather either post-coitally or maybe pre-coitally, as we'll see how things are going to go. And Duan realizes what's going on, and she says, come on, Kong, forget about me. This thing is just never going to work. And Kong doesn't think so. He's stroking her with a finger, and he works at it, and he manages to pull down her top. And we get this shot of his face, and boy, does he have a look on his face when he sees her boobies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he really uh he really does seem delighted by that. <laughs> I, you know, although, I can understand. I should be right there well, with yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Although we, we don't really get to see very much. No, it's they kind of hide it from us, which is that. a little unfortunate. But yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> so as often happens, their play is interrupted by a giant bow constrictor showing up. 
<laughs> and interesting thing here, the deal is the original film, there were dinosaurs on the island and Kong fought with the dinosaurs. Well, Dino De Laurentiis, who, you know, produced and financed the film, was like, yeah, we can't afford to do the stop motion to do dinosaurs, so we're not going to do dinosaurs. But in the Kong template, you know, in the story template, they had to do something. So they had this mm -hmm. giant bow constrictor show up. And Kong and the bow constrictor have a big fight. And the bow constrictor is wrapping itself around him. And, you know, it's pretty serious. He could clearly die. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Dwan runs away because he put her down. And she finds Jack. And they're together. And they watch this fight. And also the Peter Jackson movie recreated this part too. Eventually, actually, once Kong sees that she is with Jack and they're running away, he gets really pissed off. And that gives him the energy to like split apart the jaws of the bow constrictor and kill him. So while Kong and the bow constrictor were fighting, Dwan ran off into the arms of Jack. And by the way, <laughs> Lotus, at this point, her top has totally fallen off. Now, we only see her from the back. <laughs> Not yeah. that I noticed. And Bridges does the honorable thing and gives her his shirt. You know, although yeah. I would have been okay if he hadn't. <laughs> oh, <No>, sure. Yeah. <laughs> at least wait till they get back to the, uh, to the palisade. So Kong sees Duan escaping, and is in his rage, he manages to tear apart the jaws of the bow constrictor. Always good to have some inspiration. Yeah, that, that was uh, really, uh, it's just a brief scene, but it's really kind of gory. You know, it's not, it's not the goriest thing I've ever seen, but it definitely, you know, it's, it's effective, I think. And one of the things <laughs> I'll say here, and again, in contrast to a certain other remake, is that Kong has a real personality, and we see his rage, and we see, especially once he sees Duan is getting away, and that lets him rip apart the bow constrictor like we really have a sense of his character here yeah yeah he does come across as having readable emotions a lot of the time so that's a that's a good trick and honestly i think that's in part because a lot of him is a guy in a suit now you know they had like uh contact lenses over the guy's eyes so it'd look more ape-like but you know it did make him more human-ish hmm so now that the bow constrictor is dead, Dwan and Jack are running from a very pissed off Kong. <laughs> it's coming after <laughs> them. And they jump off a cliff into a river where Kong can't follow. As we'll find out later, apparently Jack in his book about primates had mentioned that monkeys or apes uh, don't swim. Hmm. Yeah. Meanwhile, the boat is tracking Kong on radar and the people at the camp are finishing covering up the big trench. And they're told that they have five minutes until the monkey's going to arrive. <laughs> so <laughs> they turn out the lights. We see all the yellow barrels that were brought by the plane drop in the trench, but we don't know what that's all about. They're rigged up for something. Now, what they didn't necessarily plan for is that Jack and Dwan reach the gate. So they open up the gate a little bit and let them in and they close it again. Because part of their plan is they actually want Kong to have to break down the gate because they have this trench and they don't want him to know the trench is there. So they want to kind of surprise him and have him have to actually smash his way through this gate. In yeah. fact, in order to make sure that he can smash through the gate, they actually pull back the big bolt a little bit right. so that it'll be available. So Kong reaches the gate. He's pretty pissed off. And after a lot of smashing, <laughs> he breaks through as they'd planned. And he trips right into the trench that they'd made for him. Yeah, goes well. And it turns out the barrels that they'd had delivered are filled with chloroform. 
So they release the barrels and he is being knocked out. He's very groggy. And the last thing we see of him, and well, I want to see what you think. I think it's very effective. But anyway, the last thing we see of him is this giant arm slowly rising out of this trench, uh, which is very foggy. We can't really see anything. And then falling Mm -hmm. back into the trench. And I thought, wow, this is a pretty amazing image. What did you think about this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was good. Although I was I was kind of distracted at the time because I was wondering how they knew the right amount of chloroform to use without <laughs> actually killing them. I, I mean, maybe chloroform doesn't kill people, but I would assume if you had enough of it, it would. So, I don't know. <laughs> so your geek mind was keeping you from seeing this emotional <laughs> situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The full impact of it was lost on me. <laughs> now we're back to the, the boat. This is, again, one of those efficient things, I think, storytelling-wise. We don't spend any time seeing him taken out of the trench or anything like that. We're just back in the boat. The boat is traveling back to the United States. Well, it turns out this is a different ship. This isn't the Petrox Explorer that they came to the island on. This is this is an actual oil tanker they've got now. Yeah, that was a little confusing to me because they do start out with a shot with a name on the side of it that doesn't say Petrox. And it wasn't clear to me if it was the same boat or not or where this came from. Yeah, so a little confusing. But it turns out they're storing Kong in a giant empty oil tank. So they'd expected to bring back a bunch of oil, but instead they have Kong, and so he's inside this. And the tank is so large that he's actually relatively small in it, kind of pathetic, sitting at the bottom with his back against the wall. And he's looking out through a grate at the top. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's really, I mean, it, it, I'm not sure how big or how, how tall the room is, but it's like, you know, he's a big guy, but he's still sitting down there and the gap between his head and the, the ceiling is, uh, immense. So yeah. it's. And I think cavernous. you had mentioned to me that this was one of the images you remembered from the film as a kid, right? Of him being in this tank. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I didn't remember it in any great detail. I just uh I just remembered him kind of being there and alone and yeah, <laughs> it was it was kind of uh you know, you feel sorry for the big lug, I guess. <laughs> well, speaking of which, so now the crew dumps boxes of food through the gate down to him, which is nice of them, but it's kind of funny because they're throwing in bananas <laughs> and at his size. These bananas are like microscopic. <laughs> I mean, he would need like thousands of them for a meal. <laughs> yeah. And maybe because of that, he's not appeased by the food and he roars and pounds the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and then we see Jack and Dwan sitting outside the tank. Bizarrely, they're playing a game of backgammon because <laughs> they have to distract themselves. Dwan is upset hearing Kong, you know, smashing up things but she cheers up when fred wilson brings her a contract (laughs) and turns out he has it all set up they're going to tour from coast to coast you know she's going to be the innocent woman being captured by kong and as he says lights cameras kong (laughs) and he says he's working on a deal for ballantine who i assume was some famous choreographer to choreograph a beauty and the beast bit with dwan and she'll be a star And he wants Jack to be involved, and he, uncharacteristically, Wilson suddenly seems to care about them, and he wants to know if Jack and Dwan are thinking of getting married, which 
Again, it's it's kind of an odd question from him, not the kind of thing he'd usually be thinking about, <laughs> until he reveals that maybe Kong could give away the bride. <laughs> I'm not sure how Kong would feel about that. In fact, I think the rest of the film will give us a clue. <laughs> yeah. Even Wilson at this point is like, ah, eh, maybe he wouldn't be so interested. <laughs> But now Dawn reconsiders her star status. How can she become a star from the kidnapping of Kong from the island? And Wilson reminds her that Kong tried to rape her. And <laughs> this interesting little exchange, she says, that's not true. He risked his life to save me. You know, she's talking about him fighting the bow constrictor. Mm -hmm. And Wilson said, he tried to rape you, honey. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to say he kind of has a point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They weren't quite physically compatible, I think. It just is a good thing that he didn't go further with it. So now we're at nighttime on the deck, and Jack and Dwan are back on the deck. And <laughs> given what we were just talking about, I feel this is inappropriate, but Jack says, the ape had the right idea. <laughs> and Dwan says, what's mm. that? And he kisses her. And I'm like, okay, th this is not the line I would use. <laughs> <laughs> While he's kissing her, her scarf falls off and conveniently floats down into the tank where Kong is. He's kind of drowsy and it falls onto his chest. Now, this is one of those Kong is whatever size he needs to be because her scarf practically covers his chest, right? This yeah. is like a, a multi-story monster. <laughs> I was thinking it did seem pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> so he picks it up and sniffs it. And meanwhile, Jack and Dwan are retiring to his cabin so they can finally do it. Remember, they were going to do it earlier, and then she got kidnapped by the natives. <laughs> yeah. And now they're going to finally do it. But Kong now goes crazy, banging on the walls, you know, and he's like, you know, bursting pipes. And then, you know, the ship is in real trouble. So Dwan leaves Bridges, promising to be right back. <laughs> and I was thinking this movie could be called, you know, the blue balling of Jeff Bridges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he keeps getting real close, and then uh, yep. it's, uh, snatched away from him at the last <laughs> moment. So Kong is tearing up the tank, and in fact, the captain announces that he's going to flood the tank with water and drown him. So Juan runs up to the grate on the deck. She calls out to Kong, calming him down, and Jack runs up. He wants her to get away because he believes that the, you know, the water is going to be pumped in, and he says she can't help him now. But she gets onto the grate, and she threatens to jump. Meanwhile, Kong jumps up to try and grab her, and then he hits the floor, and that shock causes her to fall in. And in one of the more unfortunate special effects, she falls into his hand. It doesn't look very good, but mm -hmm. okay. But the good thing is, with her there, Kong calms down, and he starts to fall asleep, and then she climbs this big ladder and gets out. Now, it must have taken her about 10 minutes to climb this ladder, because this is a really <laughs> big tank. Now, here's one of the things, again, I really appreciate about this following up on the original film being very tight. The next thing we know, we are seeing a massive fireworks show in the United States. Not only have they already gotten back, but they're already presenting Kong. Like, they just skip all sorts of plots that they could have done, and we go right to this. And hmm. so we have a massive fireworks show. We see marching bands and cheerleaders. The cheerleaders are carrying Petrox Corporation signs. And behind the scenes, Dwan is being dressed and prepared for a starring role. Jack shows up, but he's not dressed for his part. And he tells Fred Wilson, I'm quitting your circus. Hmm. Then we see helicopters. We hear multilingual broadcasts over loudspeakers. So clearly this is, you know, an international presentation. 
and we see bleachers with people on them and stairs going up a ramp that emulates the one that Dwan was put on back at the island to introduce her to Kong. Hmm. And nearby, there are giant King Kong neon signs. The whole idea here is this is a very cheesy presentation. <laughs> yeah. And a helicopter comes into the stadium, and Dwan and Fred get out of the helicopter. And then black guys dressed as island natives lead Dwan up the stairs and sort of quasi-tie her up so that she's there for, for Kong. And Fred Wilson is narrating this for the crowd, and he's talking about beauty and the beast and all this <laughs> stuff. And these giant doors in the wall open, and a huge Petrox gasoline pump comes forward. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, uh, I get a kick out of that. I hadn't been <laughs> expecting that. <laughs> and the pump skin is lifted, and there's a massive Kong standing there with a crown on his head. Yeah, it's a pretty stupid-looking crown, too. And a pretty stupid looking Kong. You know, the problem here was they spent half a million dollars at the time, which would be, you know, who knows how many million dollars now, creating this huge giant version of Kong that was, had all these hydraulics and could move and everything, but it didn't work. <laughs> so what would happen is these people would be inside it controlling it and the hydraulic pipes would explode and they would get this hydraulic oil all over them and then to make matters worse. The exit and entrance was the crotch of Kong, right? So you would, the crotch would open up and all of these technicians would tumble out, you know, covered in hydraulic oil. <laughs> so literally after spending half a million dollars on this massive life-size Kong, they were able to use it for 15 seconds in the film. And every mm. one of those 15 seconds looks terrible, <laughs> but they just had to use it because they'd spent all that money on it. <laughs> what you'll notice if you look at that scene is that they kept switching to inserts where they had the guy in the suit <laughs> uh -huh. because those looked better than the actual, you know, life-size Kong. <laughs> but anyway, so Will Fred Wilson over the microphone says, hail the power of Kong and Petrox. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't do very good planning because they had no security for this whole crowd. So the whole crowd rushes forward and there's all these uh, reporters and photographers. They rush up the steps to where Dwan is and toward Kong and they start pushing Dwan around and taking pictures of her. And Jack is nearby and he's like, stop it. You don't understand. He's going to think you're attacking her. Well, which is what happens. Kong sees them harassing her and he gets rather upset about the whole thing. And Fred Wilson over the microphone says, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing to fear. That is an escape proof cage certified by the New York city government. <laughs> and if there's one thing I know is that the New York city government is qualified to certify that a cage can't be escaped by a giant monkey. Yeah. And in the, in the 1970s in particular, I think the New York city government was not uh, at its highest level of respect. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, Kong easily breaks out of his bonds and tears apart the cage around him. And the crowd backs off, and there's just one standing there on the platform. And the crowd goes crazy. They're running around, and then they trampled one, which, again, upsets Kong, and he heads for her. <laughs> all along the way, he steps on anyone in his way. Amazingly, all the people he steps on, there's no blood or kind of crushedness. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very tasteful squashing. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, Fred Wilson gets stepped on by Kong, which is appropriate, and he's screaming in terror. But 
They had a special effects issue here. So if you notice in there, you don't actually see him get crushed. You see him, you know, holding up his hands and screaming, and then you see a foot leaving. Well, I think you see his foot coming down on him, don't you? Like here, you get a Fred's eye view of the foot coming down, if, if I remember right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, what happened behind the scenes was they were actually supposed to show the foot crushing him, but literally the day they were filming, <laughs> the director was like, well, why don't you try that out ahead of time so we make sure we don't hurt our actor? And they tried it out, and they're like, yeah, this is going to kill him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they couldn't show you, they couldn't show the foot actually crushing him because it would have actually crushed him. <laughs> so that's why you have these shots that kind of work around that. <laughs> I guess it's good that they decided to test it first. Yeah, that's always commendable. <laughs> Especially in this production where they didn't seem to do a lot of that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Charles Gordon went to make a lot more movies after this. Yep. So it would have changed history. <laughs> so Kong sees Dwan and Jack in the parking lot running away. They don't. They get out of the car and run because there's just a huge traffic jam. So there's no point in sitting in a car. And... They run away, and then this being New York, they flee on an overhead train. <laughs> I'm sure nothing could go wrong here. It's again kind of funny because, I mean, they're on a train, so Kong doesn't know where they are, but he starts sniffing. <laughs> so yeah. Apparently, he has this incredible, you know, giant monkey nose sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, uh, he he can smell Dwan anywhere in Manhattan. That's pretty damn impressive. <laughs> So he knows she's in this train and he actually gets ahead of the train and he comes up to the tracks and he starts smashing up the tracks. And then he starts throwing cars. So apparently he knew which car she's on because he throws other cars. Then the car she's in, he rips off the roof like it's a tin full of sardines. And if you think about it, it kind of is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And while he's doing that, Jack and Dwan slip out a door before he can find them. <laughs> but And this is honestly my favorite moment in this movie. Kong looks Ugh. down into the car and he sees this woman laying on the ground. She has a dress that's not unlike Dwan's, right? A kind of elegant dress. Mm -hmm. And, you know, probably she's blonde and everything. So he picks her up thinking it's Dwan. <laughs> he looks at her and realizes she isn't. And he just throws her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could, you could almost hear him say, hmm, eh. <laughs> <laughs> so she's thrown to her death so you know it's like you didn't have to do that you could have put her down but okay <laughs> and then and i love this because this is classic hollywood right the train cars all start erupting in balls of fire <laughs> i'm like what were they were they all carrying rocket fuel <laughs> yeah that, I, I wasn't sure if like maybe he he threw them onto a gas station or something <laughs> Well, that would at least be a good explanation. <laughs> and he roars and moves on to find his beloved. Meanwhile, Jack and Dwan have hijacked a motorcycle. We don't see if they kicked somebody off of it or how they had the keys. We don't know. <laughs> no details like that. Oh, and now the version I watched, it showed that there was a guy who riding up on a motorcycle and he saw Kong coming. Mm. So he just bailed and ran off on foot. Did you and watch the TV they... version then? Because you might have had an, that would be the extra half uh, hour because that was not in this one. Hmm, no, I watched the one that oh, okay. wasn't the TV Well, maybe version. I just missed that shot. Okay. It could be. It was pretty quick, I think. So now we have the classic monster movie trope, although they don't really follow up on it. We have a bunch of army people amassed on one end of the bridge with machine guns and giant lights, you know, waiting for the big monster to come. And usually you'd have a big fight, but that doesn't actually happen. 
Meanwhile, for some reason, so Jack and Dwan are on this motorcycle. They're riding down the bridge. And then when they're still about half a mile away from the military at the end of the bridge, they dump the bike and start running toward the soldiers. <laughs> I'm like, why not ride the bike all the way up to the soldiers? <laughs> it's just, just my thought. Just a, just a note. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder if they maybe like got onto some scaffolding under the bridge or something to get past the soldiers. <laughs> and that, yeah, It's not clear how they get from one end of the bridge to yeah. the other. So, and, and maybe there's something we plan to film here that they left out. Because all of a sudden they're now off the bridge and they're somewhere on a street in New York. So the Brit and, and, and actually here's what I would argue from an editing standpoint, they should have just cut out the bridge. They never did anything with it. They never did anything with the bike. They never did anything with the bridge. They didn't do anything with the army on the bridge. So they should have just sliced that out. And that then we see Jack and Dwan in New York, right? Yeah. And now <laughs> Dwan suddenly has this urge for them to go to a bar and she just insists that Jack take her to a bar. Now, you know, helicopters have been flying around telling everyone to go home and, you know, stay away from things. There's a bar on the corner. And so she convinces him to take her there while they're walking into the bar. Jack sees the world trade center twin towers. And that image reminds him of something, which we'll get back to. It took me a moment to figure out what it was reminding him of, because it's not something that they really, uh, prominently featured earlier in the movie but yeah yeah and Dwan, in trying to get him to go into the bar she's reminding him that you know kong was across the river he couldn't really go over the bridge and his own book said that apes don't swim so they must be safe which does tell us that she read his book which is interesting and then we immediately get a shot of kong swimming or at least let's say walking across the water so i had <laughs> I had not picked this up before, and, you know, I watched it a couple of times for the podcast, and it wasn't until my last watching where I realized she said this thing about they don't swim, and then he's in the water. So that tells us that Kong is so motivated to get to her that he's willing to go across the water, even though that's something that, at least in this movie, apes don't do. Yeah. Then the two of them, the humans in the bar, this reminds me of a scene in Quatermass and the Pit where uh, Quatermass and uh, I think maybe it was Roni, they they go into a uh, they go into a bar that people have cleared out of. Then they're just sort of all alone in there while the rest <laughs> of the city's going crazy. So I don't know, just a little little echo of that. I doubt it's an intentional <laughs> tribute. But yeah, I think we'll be seeing that months in the future, or maybe months in the past. Who knows? <laughs> it's hard to keep <laughs> our timeline straight. But yes, uh, I agree. Uh, it is very similar. So then Kong gets out of the water on the other side of the river, and he immediately comes across an electrical plant and smashes through it, causing a blackout. <laughs> but you know, it's New York in the seventies, so they're used to it. <laughs> in fact, in the now dark, empty bar, Dwan reminds Jack about how many babies were born nine months after the famous New York blackouts. <laughs> so once again, he's yeah. getting a chance. Let's see if it happens. <laughs> yeah, she's building him up again. <laughs> but then Jack remembers what the Twin Towers reminded him of. It was those giant twin rocks on the island where he was with Dwan. And he realized that's where Kong's going to go. So rather than, uh, once again, uh, consummating his relationship with Juan, he runs off to the phone and somehow he has the number leading directly to city government during an emergency. I don't know. 
But he's instantly talking to whoever's in charge of the city, presumably the mayor, and he tells them where Kong is going as long as they promise that they're not going to hurt him, that they'll just use nets on him. And they're like, oh, sure, we're not going to hurt him. (laughs) (laughs) And meanwhile, Weldwan is waiting for Bridges. (laughs) A familiar giant hairy hand comes to the door of the bar. (laughs) That was a pretty, pretty good image. Yeah, yeah, although it also is probably one of the least least plausible moments in the uh, in the movie. I mean, yeah. I mean they're they're in a bar in Manhattan and Yeah, he and has they, that remarkable sense of smell, remember? We do see him looking at her through the window. Yeah. <laughs> so he grabs her and sure enough, he immediately heads off toward the twin towers. And when he gets there, the military is all around. So he starts climbing one of the buildings, just as Jack had said he would. And <laughs> Jack had apparently found a bike somewhere. So he rides up on a bike and he yells to Dewan to close her eyes because he says the helicopters are coming to Net Kong. And, oh, okay, if you say so. <laughs> and I know he believes this, but it's like believing the story about how your pet was taken to a farm state. And yeah. So now Jack takes a very long elevator ride to the top. What did you say? It was 105 or 107 or 107 something? 107 was the <laughs> observation deck. Yeah. But I think he only gets to 80-something, and then he has to make his way. I don't know. He's, he's kind of making his way up there. Meanwhile, Kong gets to the top, and he's holding Duan and enjoying a quiet moment with his love in the moonlight, you know, in this scenario where these rocks make him feel comfortable. <laughs> Everything could be okay, especially since... The military had been told to stand down and not shoot at him, uh, probably because of Jack's agreement. Mm -hmm. But there are some rogue soldiers who've gotten onto a window cleaning lift, and they're going up to the top, and they have flamethrowers, and they're not paying attention to the orders. (laughs) And so they get up to the top, and they attack Kong with the flamethrowers. And as you mentioned earlier, he now jumps from one of the World Trade Center buildings to the other one, which is pretty dramatic. Yeah. And then he starts tearing apart stuff on the top of the building and throwing it at the guys with flamethrowers. And eventually, one of the things he tears apart is a gas tank. And so (laughs) when he throws it at them and they've got the flamethrowers going, it blows them up. And amusingly, Jack is seeing all this and he yells in support of Kong. So he's like, you bastard. So he was totally supportive of him uh, killing these people, burning them alive. And uh, when he jumps from building to building, he's got Duan in his hand, too. So that's uh, pretty impressive that she uh, <laughs> didn't get squished in that process. Yep. So now helicopters show up, but surprise, instead of having nets, <laughs> they have machine guns. And Duan tells Kong to hold her so they won't shoot him, but he puts her down to protect her. And then he fights the helicopters. And this is both... You know, a key moment in the movie, very emotional and unfortunate because the helicopter effect shots are not good. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually one where you see a helicopter behind him and you can kind of see them just moving the green screen up and down and back and forth to move the helicopter along. You're like, really? (laughs) 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 But if you ignore the helicopter effects, they shoot the hell out of him. And it's the first time we really see blood in the movie. And mm-hmm. since they show blood here, it's not that they couldn't show blood. I think they chose to wait till this point because they wanted to make the blood very impactful. Yeah. And it's and, uh, it looks good. I mean, the color uh, looks, it, it's not like that obvious fake blood that you see in a lot of things. Right. And so even after he's bleeding, the copters just keep shooting him. It's very intense. Eventually, he falls down on the roof. He's alive, but he's mortally wounded. Dwan 
makes her way to him, but as soon as she gets to him, he falls over the side of the building into the square between the two World Trade Tower Center buildings. And then we get what I think is actually a pretty well done audio thing, which is all we can really hear is this giant heartbeat. And photographers have climbed up on Kong and they're swarming over him, taking pictures as he's dying. And the light is going out of his eyes. And meanwhile, the heartbeat slows down and stops. And then the crowd rushes in. And this is interesting because they actually invited anybody who wanted to be part of the movie to come down and 30,000 people came. (laughs) And Jessica Lang had this problem because she's, you know, she had, at this point, we don't see this, but somehow she's come down the, you know, 107 floors. (laughs) He's standing next to him and it took her like 30 seconds or something. And... This crowd, like one of the guys reached out and tried to pull off her top and everything. She was pretty terrified of them, Jessica Lange, the actress. And they shot one night with the huge 30,000 crowd, and then the next night they shot with just a a smaller paid crowd. And so she's standing next to Kong as he dies, and then crying, she makes her way back to Jack and the crowd. Well, she calls for Jack, but I don't know that she actually catches up to him. Well, she's kind of moving in his direction. Yeah, we don't Mm. necessarily see them reunite. She's trying to get to him in the crowd. He's coming toward her. And the camera pulls back, and we have this huge Kong corpse, which was, you know, a life-size version of Kong in the center of this crowd. And it's the end of the movie. Was this the hydraulic thing? I don't think so. I think it was Mm. a different life-size version of of Kong. And we're at the end of the movie. And if anything, I would complain that I think it's a very emotional and effective end of the movie. And they immediately pop up these credits about who did the special effects and everything. And I thought, you know, you could have waited another 30 seconds or something to start showing the credits. Yeah, they were they they were a bit quick uh, on the draw with that one. What was it, Carlo Rambaldi? And, yeah, uh, he, they, it, there's a guy named him know, and uh, Butler, uh, Rick. Rick, Rick Baker, Baker, I think they mentioned, too. Yeah, Carla yeah. Rambaldi and Rick Baker designed the suit. In fact, Baker designed the suit itself and was the guy in the suit, and mm-hmm. he was very disappointed. He felt that it didn't look nearly as good as he'd wanted. Mm-hmm. That said, I think it worked pretty well. Yeah. But, okay, so let's talk about this thing. Right. In terms of, you know, well, let's talk about actors. What do you think of Jeff Bridges? I, I didn't look to see how early it was. Oh, he, uh, he, he was fun. Yeah, I, I mean, he, uh, he really does play a similar even type of character to the, uh, uh, the little Lebowski, you know, because he's, <laughs> uh, you know, he's, he's kind of this, uh, I, you know, I think Fred calls him a hippie at one point yeah. and he does have kind of a kind of a hippie scientist vibe to him you know he's sort of fighting the power and all that kind of stuff so uh yeah he, he was he was entertaining he's uh he's jeff bridges but he was a young <laughs> jeff bridges i yeah. i can't recall having seen him this young so that was fun yeah and my feeling i think he didn't win like acting awards for it or something people kind of called out groden and jessica lang and and not him but i think he was a linchpin in part because he seemed to take it very seriously. I mean, there was no winking at the camera or anything. I mean, he was really in this. Mm-hmm. And I think that was important to making it 
believable. And especially he's having to work with, you know, this model who's not an actress. And so that means he has to carry a lot of those scenes and make it work. And I, I thought he did a really good job. And it's a little funny to me because I like Charles Grodin, but it's interesting to me that people called him out for his performance because as we did or probably will talk about when we talk about Quatermass, he's playing this very standard role, right? The the corporate uh, or military guy who's screwing everything up and is very absolute. And so mm-hmm. I didn't feel there was a lot of subtlety to that. I thought he was fine, but I, you know, it's not like I'd give him an award for it. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I I enjoyed his performance, and I I did I did find some uh, some nuance in there as far as uh, you know he wasn't a complete rotter, just a, <laughs> largely a rotter. <laughs> I think you might be being a bit generous. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think of Jessica Lang? I mean, obviously put in this because she's a model and looks good without a bra. <laughs> but, but what do you think? You know, it's funny. I. Uh, I didn't recall much about her from when I saw the movie as a kid, and I was a kid who was prone to have crushes on actresses <laughs> in movies, and uh, I don't recall ever having had a crush on her. But um, having seen the movie now, um, I really, uh, I really got a kick out of her. She just uh, comes across as a very likable person. I thought so. Yeah, um, she. You could really. Uh, root for her you know she wasn't just some goofball who you don't care about you know you actually wanted to see her uh come through all right yeah and as we talked about i think typically if you hire a model to do this sort of thing who's never acted before this is not what you're gonna get right i mean she even though she Mm -hmm. felt and you know probably needed to go and get some acting training she really did deliver and absolutely i don't i i think that um she did really well Mm mm-hmm Let's see, acting-wise, uh, well, Roy, he's not in it too much, but I did like him a lot. He's just very funny oh, yeah. and cynical. <laughs> no, it's especially when he's uh, when he's ragging on Wilson for uh, prematurely sending that uh, message back home, you know, right. ta- taunting him about the oil and the 10,000 years, and <laughs> that was uh, that was a good good bit. You know, and last one on the acting, I'm going to say, I mean, obviously Kong is a combination of a guy in a suit and different special effects. But as I mentioned earlier, I feel like he has a personality and we understand him. And I think that it doesn't matter if you're thinking this is a guy in a suit or or whatever. If you understand this character, I think that it works. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, uh, I think he, I mean... I didn't really, I wasn't really rooting for him, uh, because, uh, yeah, <laughs> he didn't want him just, to get the girl. <laughs> yeah. He, he's just a big ape at the end of the day, but, uh, but yeah, still he does convey, you know, some personality in this. I feel this. like you're not being very tolerant there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everybody's got their own place in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> so story-wise, I mean, what did you think? It was, it was fun. There, there was. You know, quite a few, quite a few implausible things. I mean, <laughs> uh, if King Kong wasn't such a well-known cultural hey. touchstone, I'd I'd probably think that was a fun movie. But boy, that was sure had a bunch of plot holes in it. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Yeah, it's as far as um, making everything work together. It, it did at least follow its own internal logic. You know how they get to the island and then they scare off the natives and they build their trap for the ape. And then uh, you know, I always I always wondered how they got him onto the ship. Uh, that's one thing I, I remember. Uh, yeah, let's not worry about that too much. <laughs> good, good point. <laughs> well, here's my thing. I so I think there are only a few stories that are worth retelling over and over, and I think this is one of them because the ultimate story here is going into the unknown, bringing back a danger from the unknown, and having that danger, you know, defy you. And then cause havoc, right? Hmm. And so I think that is a fundamental story. Like you can, it doesn't, you know, a hundred years from now, you can redo this film, redo this story. It still makes sense. And I, what I respect about this film, as I mentioned, compared to say the Peter Jackson version is they understood, like you just move forward plot point by plot point. There's an almost never wasted second, right? Mm-hmm. We we get to the island, we find Kong, we come back, we, you know, it just one thing after the other. Now, the thing this movie added to what the original did was they added a lot more of the very clear romance between Kong and her. Mm-hmm. But they did it in a way that I thought did not, it's not like it went too long, it's not like it didn't make sense. I mean, she's like, look, this isn't going to work. Right? So, <laughs> so she's trying to explain to him, you know, and it's a very self-aware movie in that sense. Yeah. And they were kind of taking a chance between with doing, with enhancing the romance between this giant ape and the woman, but I thought it worked mm-hmm. and I thought it gave him personality and motivation. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, you know, maybe it's unfair to ask you this since you were the one who suggested it as host <laughs> choice, but, is this uh, worth watching for a modern audience? <laughs> I would I would say so. I, I, I had fun with it. I mean, it's not mind-blowing. It's not going to change <laughs> your life, probably, although it probably did change my life in some way, so maybe <laughs> it'll change somebody else's. But, but it's just a fun movie to sit down and watch. Sure, it was neat, and you'll... Uh, uh, you'll get to see some 1970s New York stuff, which is fun. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say, I'd say it's worth checking out. Well, I agree. I definitely think so. Now, if of the three remakes of this, if you're going to watch only one, I'm going to say, watch the original. If you're going to watch only two, watch this mm-hmm. one. If you're going to watch three, I don't know what to tell you. Don't watch the other one. (laughs) (laughs) Watch King Kong versus Godzilla or something. (laughs) Actually, you know, and that's the thing. Now we have these other Kong films, and I'm totally fine. I enjoyed Skull Island. I enjoyed Kong versus Godzilla. But those are are completely different things, right? They're not this canonical story of going out to deepest, darkest Africa and finding Mm. a mysterious monster and bringing it back. I mean, to me, that's the canonical kong story these other ones are just they're just playing around with the kong thing i have fun with them but they're not you know this fundamental story yeah okay so with that okay well i think we recommend you watch this maybe we'll see the other ones sometime we have no idea what's coming next (laughs) uh, given how we're recording these things these days so we will talk to you later
I'm not going to name names, but we have a former guest on this story who told me that. She, she was um, at a party with some friends, and they were talking about this trope about taking the pet to a farm upstate. And she said, and she was like in her 20s. And she said, oh, that's funny, because my parents actually did take my pet to a farm upstate. <laughs> <laughs> and then she stopped and was like, oh. <laughs> 